Hey there, it's Lisa from the Culinary Chronicles podcast. On this show, I will interview people from all walks of life about their food experiences and culinary journeys. Food, feeding my loved ones, sharing meals, and the conversations and love that fill the table are what this podcast is all about. My father was a butcher, my uncle a baker, and my grandmother's after-school snacks were always a delightful Sicilian treat. I've always celebrated with food and found gathering around a table the most amazing feeling in the world. Culinary Chronicles is my way of sharing this love of food with you. I hope this podcast fills your cup with entertaining tales about the love of food. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Culinary Chronicles special episode. My name is Kim Tradewell, and my business is called May and James Co. And I've been fortunate enough to be able to work with Lisa to really see this podcast come to life and to help with production for the biweekly episodes that you are able to access now. Um, So Lisa, hello, and thank you so much for, you know, letting me interview you today. Thank you. Hi, Kim. Good to see you again. Yes. Let's start with just telling everybody the reason why behind your podcast. Why did you want to create Culinary Chronicles? Why was it important for you to share these other experiences um, with others? Uh, Excellent question. I think the reason why I started the podcast was I am fascinated by people, their stories, their culture, their history. And I always love to talk about food. I've always talked about food. My mom always said I should have been a food critic. I, growing up, love to make food, watch people make food, try and make food, um, invent, you know, sandwiches in the kitchen with my sister. And I think just my mom's love language is food. She tries to feed us at every minute of every hour that she's with us. She's always trying to make sure that we're fed. We have snacks in our pockets. We have candies. We have like food as everywhere in our home. And I think that People have such fascinating food journeys and histories. And in my career in, you know, first starting out in PR and then running my own bakery and culinary classroom, people have such connections and stories around food. And I just, after a class, I would stand there and talk to people about food and what they make and how they cook or, you know, their best pie experiences. And people, my teachers would say, like, you have to stop talking to everyone. We want to go home. (laughs) But I'm just excited and I'm, I love learning about people's food journeys. So I think this is just an extension of doing our culinary classroom in our bakery for 13 years now. This just gives me a chance to interview all the amazing people that I've met through the business and through my personal and private world and pre-culinary career world. So I'm just passionate about food and I can talk about it forever. And yeah, that's probably a long-winded answer to a very short question. <laughs> But I'm so happy that I've been doing this with you. And thank you so much for taking me on and listening and editing and recording with me and being part of this journey because it wouldn't be possible without you. So thank you for your amazing self. Oh, thank you. And it's been honestly so fun to listen to the women that you have interviewed so far. The stories are so interesting and the careers that these women have had are so so and experiences are so cool and I agree with you I think food 
does, it's like an expression and extension of who we are and it brings people together. And um, yeah, I want to dig into a little bit more so that people can hear more about your journey with how you got started in the food industry, because you just mentioned that you started out in your career in PR, which isn't really connected with food, but kind of, I guess, could be. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that looked like? Yeah, well, I took geography in school. Obviously, you know, the perfect career for me in geography, which randomly took me nowhere except to a big room with my boss who had three computers crunching numbers all day. And for those who know me, numbers are not my strong suit. So I absolutely despise that job. But there was a very cool woman who I'm interviewing on my podcast a couple doors down in an office. And she was like always singing and dancing and had this amazing personality. And she was the marketing director for a large property development company that ran Canada shopping malls across Canada. And I sidled up to her and said, you know, look, I hate that job in that office over there. Can I work for you? Because this looks like fun. And that's how my PR career started. And I said goodbye to geography and demographics and urban planning and all the fun stuff that I learned in school. And I started doing PR and that took me to the UK where I was supposed to go for six months, fell in love after three months, fell in love with the country and then stayed for almost 10 years. And the food scene over there was just completely different. And every paycheck I saved money to travel because it's so cheap to travel to Europe. So every paycheck, you know, my little tiny paycheck that I got back then, I think I was making 16,000 pounds a year. I saved and I bought a flight to Greece or I bought a flight to Spain or to France. And me and my best friend would just scrimp and save, stay in hostels and travel every month, almost every weekend if we could, because the easy jet flights would be, you know, 49 pounds or cheaper than taking a go train in Toronto to <laughs> Montreal or something. And we just ate and drank and danced and just really enjoyed the culture. And I think that just started my love of, well, not started, but reignited my love of food and travel. And that's how I kind of always had food as I started a food blog in the UK. I tried to document all the recipes from my family who still lived in Sicily, which is still in my drawer here to my right, which I hopefully will one day resurrect. Then I worked in PR. I worked on all these amazing brands, some drink brands, some luxury hotels. And my favorite job, which was a very short-lived job, um, I worked for a very, it was called Very Very. Gosh, I don't know if it's still in existence, but it was a Russian luxury magazine. And I was their food writer, which was my dream job. And I was like, this is it. I'm going to be a food writer for the rest of my life. And I traveled to the most amazing destination through the magazine and did all these amazing, you know, Michelin star restaurant reviews, private winery tours in Florence. And everything I did, I was like, I can't believe they're paying me for this. I mean, I did get paid in cash, like very randomly at the side of the building. But I don't know if I should include this in the podcast. I think that's an interesting story all in its own, like a whole podcast episode that's a whole on podcast this experience. On the Russian yes. magazine, yeah. And my boss, Matt, was too busy to go to all these amazing spas and wineries. And I and my boyfriend at the time were like, sure, we can do this. And I went to Scotland, the hills of Scotland. I was, it was just, I was alongside some Daily Telegraph food editors. And I was here with this amazing Russian magazine. But 
I was 22 and critics and food editors were beside me horseback riding in the, in the hills of Scotland. I was like, okay, this is a great wow. job. Yeah, what a cool experience. You ask your guests what some of their best experiences or best, you know, while they've traveled and what they've seen and done throughout their careers and lives. And like, how do you even choose? If I were to ask you that, like, what would be like one just from this experience alone? From, you know, the time when you were in your early 20s traveling and working for this magazine and being a food writer, like what was one of your best experiences through that time? I think one of the most amazing ones, especially because I was so young and I had never really experienced luxury cuisine, was Mm -hmm. there was a chef in Florence who has three restaurants on three corners in Florence and one is a Michelin star, one he runs with his son who has Down syndrome and one is more of like a casual restaurant and we were able to visit all three that weekend that we were there and I mean I was 22 I'd never gone to a Michelin star restaurant and they I don't even know if I was dressed properly but they were like oh the journalist from London she's here and I got the the red carpet treatment and my boyfriend and I were just you know they were like excuse me ma'am which salt would you like and they had six little trays of salt and I was like is this for real? Like black salt, pink salt, Himalayan salt. Like <laughs> it was just so fun. And then wow. we went across the street to his more casual one where there was like, there was a show and there was a meal, which was more buffet style, family style. So it was like the hugely formal dining room experience. Then across the street, the really rambunctious Italian, like full of life and soul meal. And then the casual bistro where the pasta and They had said to me, and this was, you know, a key moment. They had said, we've made you the best of the best from the menu here. I was like, great. And they brought this foil paper package out. And I said, oh, this is lovely. What is this? And they were like, it's brains. And I was just, you know, okay. And my boyfriend looked at me. He's like, yes, this looks wonderful. Go ahead. And I was like, well, I think you should go first, honey, because you're my special guest this weekend. And I ate it. I'd never had brains before, even though my dad and his sister and their family would cook brains as a big Sicilian treat. We never really partook as children, but it was kind of like a soft boiled egg with a lot of like brothy, salty spice. So it was okay. I had to take and eat it and obviously, you know, be very gracious because I was being right (laughs) given the best of the restaurant. But it was quite a quite a meal that. It's quite memorable. So I guess I can so. still remember I that little foil so. thing coming out. <laughs> oh my gosh, you're way braver than me. You're way braver than me. So from that experience of working as a food writer, how did that evolve into your journey into, you know, baking and falling in love with that part of your story? So my food journey, I think, was always there. My passion for food was always there because... Like my mom said growing up, she was like, you should be a food critic because I was so particular about food and restaurants and where I sat and where I ate. And even till this day, my friends are like, "Okay, wait, are we going to switch tables? Because I just have to have this feng shui about where I sit in a restaurant and what I order and what people order. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just in my blood because people just look at me like, are you okay? Like this just we're fine. We're just going to just give me a minute to like position us in the restaurant properly. Yeah. Um, But I think I had always 
wanted to do more with food. And, you know, I worked for a drinks brand, which took me to the World Cup, but it was never my own thing. So I started the blog, which was my own thing. And I loved and I had, you know, writing comments on my blog from all around the world. I wanted to start this cookbook project, which I would still call in progress. <laughs> Hopefully I could finish it soon. And I had always had these side projects. I was always a side project person for when I was young. Side project for this, that, the other, probably ADD or ADHD or whatever they call it. But I think my big break was, I always say, when I got quick fired, I was working for a private airline and my boss was horrible. And that's another blog, post, TV show, script for a movie in itself. And I got a package for three months. So this was my first time getting a package. I didn't even know what that meant, but I had salary for three months and I didn't know what to do with myself. So I looked at my close friend, Deepika, and I said, you know, I have this money and I have three months salary. What should I do? And she's like, I don't know. And I had always been a lover of food, but not a baker of food because I was single, living alone in London. I had kind of that Bridget Jones's diary, like dating circuit of dating and fun and partying and in my 20s and I looked at her and she was getting married I said oh you know what I'll just make your wedding cake and she just looked at me and said but you don't cook so that's okay I have time I'll figure it out and that was just how my brain worked and I think it still works that way I just get an idea and I go with it and I then started taking courses and I went to a trade show in Birmingham and I bought a million cake supplies because, you know, cake decorating supplies, once you see them, you just, they're all shiny. And anyway, I started buying cake decorating supplies. I started practicing making wedding cakes. I was bringing cakes every day to the agency that I eventually had to get another job at. And I was working up to baking her wedding cake at this very posh club in central London, right across from Buckingham Palace. And she was very brave to allow me to do this because <laughs> I had no experience and at the last minute her cousin from India helped me in the kitchen I didn't really know how to transport a wedding cake so I had asked her if she could ask the venue if I could make the cake there which good god today would never ever fly because cakes are made in advance which people don't know so then I didn't know how to transport anything there. So I took, I remember taking a black cab to the local grocery store, stocking up on butter, and then going to the venue to make this cake. And the chef there was, you know, like a probably very top class chef in his whites. And he looked at me and he's like, do you know how to use the machinery? And I was like, of, co of course I do, you know, and I did not. And he just said, okay here's your giant industrial mixer. And I looked at it, I was like, oh my good God, how do I turn this bloody thing on? So I turned it on with flour, the butter inside. I didn't know really how to turn it on properly. And it just had like an icing sugar explosion, which was one of my favorite terms from the start because I was covered from head to toe in icing sugar. Topeka's cousin from India, head to toe from icing sugar. Oh my and then he just popped his head back and he's like, would you like a broom? And, you know, British male chef who was very haughty toddy, he was not very impressed. And I was like, we're going to get kicked out of here for this poor, oh, this poor wedding cake making ordeal. I don't know why they agreed to do that. I would never agree to do that in my bakery or in my venue, mm -hmm. but I guess they like to pick a admonish. And then someone came down because we were in the basement of this kitchen. 
someone came down to grab and said, oh, you guys are walking down the aisle. I'm like, oh, God, okay. Well, we didn't have time to change because we weren't ready yet. We weren't prepared. So we ran up to the ceremony. And as she was walking down the aisle, me and her cousin were like covered in flour in our aprons. We haven't changed into her gowns yet. She just was walking down. I run, I'll never forget her face. But she just looked over and I was like, keep walking, keep walking. Like, we're good, we're good. Because I think she was in her head saying, oh my gosh, we're not going to have a wedding cake. This is not happening because they are disasters. And somehow, by the miracle of the universe, we made the cake, iced them. We had flowers, we had cupcakes, and we put them on display. And, and in my forever optimistic mind, people started saying, oh my gosh, this is beautiful. Do you have a business? And I was always the yes person. And I think I still am to you know, Danny, who's my number one. She's always like, oh God, please stop saying yes to things. <laughs> they were like, do you have a business? And I was like, of course I do. I was like, okay. They're like, give us your details. So I got a client from, you know, her husband's bank that he worked at. And I started doing little things on the side. And because I was in PR, I did a press release to this cool newsletter that goes global, which is still in existence today. And I did a press release that I was doing these weekly boxes of biscotti and cakes and cookies that people could take home for a weekend and a busy mom wouldn't have to make any treats for their kids. They were healthy and, you know, not healthy, but not store-bought. And I got a piece of this cool newsletter, Look Cool, and I started getting orders and I was just, okay, I need to now start making orders. So I was back at work at an agency and my friend Kevin and Emma, who are still my friends, I was like, I have to bring you all my trials and tribulations of the cookie. <laughs> my friend Kate and so every day I would bring samples and treats to the office while I was, you know, perfecting my little box that I was sending out every Friday. I was delivering them on the tube by myself. And it just got a bit crazy because I was baking all night, working all day. I had a tiny easy bake oven, which if anyone lives in the UK, it's literally a tiny oven. I would do one tray at a time. And I always had this weird notion of moving back home. So I never really invested in a KitchenAid mixer. So I made everything by hand which oh my god lisa that's insane (laughs) you you must have had like the strongest arms i think i have a little bit of insanity in my blood so i did that for a while and then i said i need to learn more and i went to this woman in south london she still has her business there she's amazing fair cake in london and this most amazing soulful human this indian woman and she taught a class for two hours on cupcake decorating. And I floated out of there because I just, in those two hours, I lost myself. She had her French music playing. She had her little poodle running around. We decorated the most beautiful cupcakes. And I remember taking the two poem. It was about an hour from my home. She was southwest. I was northeast. And just being like, I love this. I love this woman's concept. I love this idea. And I was obsessed with trying to replicate it in northwest London, which... Luckily, my friend Clada had a little cafe with a beautiful wood harvest table in the back. And I said to her, Clada, I have to do these classes once a month in your cafe. Your husband can teach us how to make cappuccino. We can make cannoli. We can put an Italian spin on it. And that's kind of how the classes began out of the little deli in uh, northwest London owned by my friend Clada. And my roommates were my test, you know, students, my friend Bronwyn, my friend Bunny. All my friends came to class as my like fillers when I didn't sell enough tickets. So I think just entrepreneurial, I just always just did things. I didn't really think them through. And 
I didn't think about how to make money. I just loved it. And I was like, I'm going to do this once a month. I love it. Even lugging everything to our deli and back and cleaning. And yeah, now I would never do any of because it's so much work, so much labor, so much money. But I think back then I just had this passion to do it. And that's how I started the culinary school from that little classroom and class in Southwest London. And now we have culinary school. We have 2000 square feet. We do classes, you know, 12 to 15 classes a week. We do corporate, we do team building. And I, yeah, I would love for that woman to come to a class at our studio one day. Oh my She's gosh. Busy with her. She's busy with her stuff. I should actually go see her when I'm visiting the UK next. Yes. And there's so much from your story that is so cool. Like, first of all, I would love to, I just have this picture of you both covered in flowers standing at the side. There's I a movie here. Imagine. There's a movie in here. If anyone has a script like writer, I have like three movies. <laughs> that is the one of my crazy visual. boss, one of starting this bakery with no experience. And this is one of like my, my travels around yes. were, and my, my job. Yeah. Oh, so cool. But I also just love that entrepreneurial spirit of not knowing everything, just knowing that it excited you and that you were passionate about it and knew that, you know, as long as you just kept kind of moving forward, things would fall into place or hopefully they would fall into place. But I think that's all we can hope for is if we put the time and energy and effort in, it will evolve into something more. And what an amazing inspirational story. I just love it. I love it. And even just like, I can literally visualize this fairy tale of, you know, that where you started the class, the culinary school, like where that started and just in the back there and having your friends come and like, it just, yeah, it sounds like a fairy tale, Lisa. It's so cool. It's so cool. Like a, what is it? A Hallmark movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, and then even how did you like bake in that, in your kitchen like that? Like how much were you actually Honestly, producing I... a week? Like that just seems... Not a lot, but I, but enough. I, yeah, I did have a dishwasher. I had a one tub sink or whatever they're called. So I had to like wash my cupcake tins, use them, wash them again, use them, wash them again. Everything was just so looking back, so time consuming, but I had no issues. I would bake till 11 PM. I would like pack them in the morning. I had, I just was in pure bliss in that little tiny kitchen which was probably 10 square feet I don't even know it tiny tiny I had a little window to the fire escape it's so oh romantical my, now it but it's so if someone were an adult looking at it saying you are a crazy woman <laughs> oh my gosh okay so let's get into a little bit about what food looked like growing up for you what was a typical meal that you guys would eat on the weekend or on a weekday mm -hmm. and did you help out a lot like were you in the kitchen a lot helping what did that look like food in our house like I said my mother is a food fanatic I don't think she even realizes it. it's just so ingrained in her DNA my grandmother was a very Sicilian strong stubborn maybe even arrogant woman who food was at the core of everything she did. So she fed all her kids. She fed her grandkids. She lived with us for many years while we grew up. And if she saw a canned tomato sauce pasta, she would, oh, it was like 
that was not cool in her book. So we were not allowed to have canned food. Once a week, my mom would squeeze in a Chef Boyardee as a giant treat for us. Our food, we know we were the ethnic Italian kids at school. We had giant panini with mortadella, cheese, and mozzarella, and arugula, and stuff that other kids were like, what the heck is that? We never had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I think we had to beg my mom for that, which I think she still never did. My grandmother's after-school snack was minestrone. She'd be like, I made you a minestrone, like chicken, potato. We're like, what the heck is this? We want chips. No, we didn't have that. My grandmother only had stale chips. So if you ever went to her house and had chips, beware. They were probably from eight years ago. Yeah. And my dad was, you know, a farmer from Sicily. He was a shepherd in Sicily. His dad had a cheese store. They were farmers. They made cheese. They had goats. He walked from town to town with his goats. So for him, dinner every night was pasta. Pasta, 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 meat, meat, meat. He was a butcher. He had his own butcher shop for years. So our menu was pasta one night pasta with chickpeas pasta with clams pasta with tomato sauce there was always pasta on the menu and my mom blessed her now as a working mom i don't know how she did it because she worked nine to five five thirty she got on the train she was home at six she would rest for 15 minutes i remember her like relying on her bed for 15 minutes and then she would start her night shift cooking cleaning laundry and that's that's what i remember you know my, my grandmother helped cook and uh, help out a little bit but she grew up in that traditional Italian genre of the man sat there, was served. And, you know, my dad did a lot compared to other family members, but my mom did a lot. So there was things that I helped. She always got us to start dinner while she was taking that half hour journey home. She would tell us to boil the water or get stuff ready or, you know, peel the beans or snap the beans or open the can of clams. But my mom is very, like, as most people are, possessive of their kitchen. And still to this day, she will not let us dunk the cookies for the tiramisu. We can't do certain things. We can do the boring things like peel the onions, cut the onions, but no. The cool things never, ever, ever were we allowed to do. And probably till the day she dies, we will not be able to dunk the cookies in the tiramisu. So if you're listening, mom, you have to let us dunk the cookies one point. <laughs> oh my God, that's the best. And I have to ask, is it seriously a thing like if you snap the spaghetti in half to put it into the water, is that like a thing that you don't do? I think it's all very, it all varies by like town to town, region to region. So we snapped the spaghetti. Did but you? I know that people okay. are against, yeah, there's all these rules in different towns, but like even from one town to the next, there's very different rules on food. So yeah, snapping is okay in our house, but I'm sure in other houses, not okay. That's awesome. I didn't realize it was like a town to town thing. Oh, um, town to town for sure. Like even cookies, like cookies in our town are not made in any other town in Italy. They're just really? so unique that. No one. Yeah, it's Italians and food are Italians are obsessed with food. That's their number one obsession is food. Mm -hmm. I think. So it's so unique to different areas. What how does that translate into how or what your kitchen looks like today and what meals look like today when you cook them with your own family? What does growing up in that traditional way? How is it today for you? Growing up, we always had the same genre of Italian cooking. So we never had Indian or Chinese or Malaysian or Indonesian food. And I think when I traveled abroad and I had, I lived by myself, I cooked for myself, I did everything for myself. I think I was exposed to so much culture and change of food. Like I had never really had beets. Embarrassingly, uh, 
didn't really know what they were. I didn't. I thought they were stinky and gross. Now I love beans. I never really had Indian food, but London is the mecca for Indian food. A good Indian takeaway. Then I fell in love with Indian food. So I think my kitchen is very much different from pre-moving to the UK than now. So I do have a mix of all the spices and foods. I still tend to gravitate towards the simple Italian cooking because I love the like the fresh flavors and the simplicity of it. I still think an Indian restaurant makes Indian food better than me. An Indian family makes Indian food better than me. But I, I think my kitchen is a little bit more varied than, let's say, my mom or my sister who are still very traditional Italian food. But I love all types of food now. But I still love Italian, so. <laughs> Italian's at the heart. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So if you were to host an elaborate dinner party for your favorite people, where would that be and what would you serve? What would that look like? If money is money, no object. Money is mm-hmm. no object. So my friend Clara, who I started my business at her little cafe in, in London, she's a wedding planner now. Uh, chic weddings in Italy. You should check out her Instagram. She always hosts these beautiful weddings in these farmhouses in Sicily or villas in Tuscany. And the setup that I love in those those beautiful weddings, and all of them are beautiful, is one long table in like a field or in a vineyard. There's even a restaurant in Niagara Lake, the Pilatary Winery. They have their picnic tables under peach trees. So in the summer, you're having a glass of wine, some wood-fired pizza, and you're sitting under peach trees. So just that outdoor, putting tables on grass, putting tables on vineyards. I love that long table, simple decor, fresh flowers on the table. Yummy, yummy, simple food, you know, pizzas or a big, huge spaghetti for everyone. And then just enjoying wine and sitting out there until very late in the evening and dancing and yeah so I think I would get Clara to organize it and uh, all my friends would magically fly in by drone or teleport themselves there and just have a big long table of yummy yummy food because I think from hearing from your past episodes and listening to what your dream supper or meal would be it is more about the experience because even how you describe it makes it sound magical like I can just smell the all the good smells from sitting outside underneath the peach trees and and spending time with those that you love I don't think we do that enough I think we are we do it on holidays we just had um, a lovely Easter dinner at my house yesterday and we spend a little more time around the table than we would normally on a day-to-day meal everybody's so busy. So I think being able to take that time and to just sit and enjoy the moment is what matters the most. And I love that you described it so, so beautifully. Yeah. And I think my girlfriend said this yesterday. She was at a a British reunion of friends. And even when we would have Sunday lunches or when we go to Sicily to see our family, a meal is sometimes a whole day affair. Because you're mm-hmm. just sitting and talking and eating and then you're having a little bit of limoncello. And it's it's not about the food, which is the core and brings everyone together, but it's just spending time together. So a Sunday meal at my Aunt Susan's house or a Sunday meal at my mom's house used to be, you know, starts at 1230. And then people would leave at 2, 3, 4, 5, come and go, visit, hello. So it's that. Mm-hmm. And I think sadly, because the 
because of COVID and just because families are getting older mm-hmm. and kids are, people are having, we're losing that Sunday ritual, yeah. which is terrible in my opinion, but hopefully we can resurrect too. it. Yeah. Yeah. We need to take the time and food is what brings us together. Is there another experience from all of your travels that involves like an experience around a meal that you've had that you would like to share before we wrap up? I have so many, but I, I remember one. I know. I bet you do. We could How do like a whole series <laughs> on this. Yeah. I was lucky enough, my my boyfriend James at the time, he won a trip to Fiji through his work for being a top, I don't know, engineer, geek. But we, he won like a trip to the main, main island, which is very touristy, but we Again, we're in our 20s, super adventurous. We took a boat four hours out to one of the ro- most remote islands. Somehow we found this island where it only had 10 huts on it. No electricity, just a generator. The grandmother had built all these huts for her kids and their grandkids. But now, because they had all moved out and moved to Australia, she rented it out. And she cooked for us every night. And the most dangerous thing on the island, which was tiny, it was probably just 10, 10 20 guests and then her and her family were coconuts falling from the coconut tree. So you would just hear these like big, like every couple minutes because the trees were so tall. And she's like, the only dangerous thing on this island is these coconuts falling because if it falls on your head, it could kill you. We're like, okay, great. (laughs) But it was a beautiful island. The beaches, just amazing. But every night, I guess her husband or her kids would collect food from the sea and make taro root, which I'd never had, which is a beautiful like potato-y type thing. Taro root chips, taro root this, taro root that. And one night, they had, a, I think every Friday, they had this special meal where they dug a big hole in the earth, in the sand, and they lit a fire, and they covered all of their food and all this bamboo and wrapping and leaves, and they put it into this fire pit and then covered it with sand, and it cooked for, you know, seven or eight hours in this steaming coals. And then they pulled it all out and unwrapped everything, and it was the most magical I guess there was chicken and pork and fish and all this taro root and all these local delicatessens, which wasn't a lot because it was an island. So I guess things they had gathered from the mainland. And it was such a rustic but authentic meal. And the ritual of that cooking took about the whole day because they said, oh, you know, we're going to start the process now. You can watch the men doing it, the elders doing it. And and then we ate at dark and then the generator went off at nine. <laughs> Stars and People still sitting around, very rustic picnic tables. It wasn't a five-star. It was very, very simple picnic tables. And we just sat into the night and just enjoyed this beautiful meal and met all these people from around the world that were lucky enough to be at this grandmother's farm or hut in the middle of the ocean. So yeah, that stuck with me. And that was such a special, special trip for me because it was so different from anything that I had never known. And the snorkeling and just staying in a grass hut and so so simple now i'd be afraid because i'd be like ah it's four hours from anywhere there's no there's no hospital near but back then you know when you're in your 20s you're like i could do anything i'm invincible that just sounds so good so good yeah you know it brings me back to the whole point of it's not like necessarily like the turkey that we love or that i love it's the fact that it takes majority of the day to cook and so while it's cooking having family and close friends around to just celebrate 
being together is what matters most. So I love that you experience that in your travels. And oh my gosh, I would love to hear more, more stories from you because you have just experienced life in such a unique way and a magical way. And I think that is something to be celebrated. So if people that are listening want to find out more about you, they want to learn more from your culinary classroom, what does that look like? How can they be involved? They can come to class in person in Toronto, Ontario. We have a culinary classroom in the Junction neighborhood. We teach classes in person. We have a wonderful head chef, Chef Amanda, who's also on this podcast. We have a great roster of teachers who are amazing and magical and fantastical in their own way, come from all around the world. And we teach online courses. So if you're wanting to learn to bake cakes, you can join from anywhere in the world. And then we have Zoom check-ins. We did, and I don't think you even know this, pre-pandemic, we had uh, an arm of our business where we took people to France and Italy called foodietrips.com which has been dormant since COVID and since my son was born. But I think we need to resurrect that and, uh, and take people again to these amazing places and with these amazing chefs. In the meantime, Anna Olson, who was another amazing chef, Canadian female chef, who's also on the show, she does the most amazing culinary travels. And you can find the information on her website too. So she just went to Mexico and did a week of Mexican cooking and just super into the culture, super authentic experiences and I think she has another one coming up um, in Italy and she does I think twice a year with her husband and they're both chefs so those are magical experiences. Ah that is something that I need to check out and I cannot wait for more people to find out all the good stuff which will be in your show notes for this episode. Thank you so much for letting me interview you. Lisa, I this was so much fun. Yeah, it was fun. And thank you for listening to my TED Talk, as I say. And thank you for editing and making all of our guests feel so welcome and making us all sound so great. So well, I'm happy that we're honor. working on this together. Yes. And we'll have to do some fun, uh, fun celebrations in person soon. Yes, I think that sounds like a must for sure. Take care and talk soon. Hey, thanks for tuning into this episode of Culinary Chronicles Made with Love. Before you go, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app. For more information on the show, visit ladolching.com. And for more behind the scenes, follow me on Instagram at Lisa Sanguidolce.